I want to read from a poem for you. Uh, this is a, an ancient poem, uh, not originally written in English. It's known as Psalm 8. The very first line and the very last line of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We've been talking and will continue talking this morning about um, kind of reinfusing the world with a sense of wonder. And um, uh, just notice that theme as you read Scripture, how, how much wonder we are meant to have as we are part of God's good world and uh, see the majesty of who He is in every part of creation. So that'll get us started this morning. And from those heights, we're going to, um, we're going to talk about, uh, last week we talked a bit about creation, some key claims related to creation. This week, uh, key claims related to evolution. And a little bit of refresher before we hear from Estella Quinn. Uh, refresher, listening and speaking well. Uh, learning how to have helpful conversations with our children, our neighbors, um, about creation and evolution. We'll talk more about that next week. Uh, if we're going to do that well, we've got to know something about the way language works. Um, terms have multiple meanings. And so when we talk about creation, last week we talked about creation, little c. Um, the act of making something or bringing it into being. No comment on whether a god was involved. And it might be creating something tiny or something big. But usually when you use creation in that sense, you're not meaning the origins of the entire universe. Right? And then we can talk about creation as the act of a god or gods that brings the universe, the earth, or life into being. But we're not yet at, this sense, big C creation, what we decided in, in these several weeks to, to call big C creation. This is, this is creation in the, in the sense that, um, that Christians would hold to this concept, that, that the God who has made himself known in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and has made himself known in the person and work of his son Jesus, that God's act of bringing the universe and the earth and life into existence that's big C creation. Um, and so, uh, could we have conversations with people who don't believe in big C creation? Yeah, and, and when we use big C creation, they might understand that we were talking about this, or they may not. We just need to be clear. And not every use of the word creation in the English language is this theologically loaded. right? We just recognize that distinction. Similarly with evolution, uh, little e evolution, we decided to call it, um, change over time. Uh, you know, our plans evolve. Our, our, our plans aren't biological, right? So, so their uses of the word evolve and evolution that have nothing to do with science or biology. It's just an ordinary human uh, word. In fact, I was reading, I saw the word evolution last night in a, a, a document from the uh, American Revolution. Uh, and it meant some, it had it, it didn't mean anything like what we would use it to mean today. It meant something like putting a plan into effect, the evolution of the plan. It's like what I never knew this. So um, anyway, word meanings change over time. We have to be listen and speak carefully when we're having loaded conversations, right? Um, and biologists, geneticists will use the word evolution to talk about genetic change over time. And uh, we're going to talk more about that today. And then big E evolution is a naturalistic understanding of evolution. Uh, the assertion that the universe is 
materialistic, that there's nothing in the universe except matter. Um, And uh, that understanding of the word evolution is more loaded than these uses of the word. So just as we saw that not every instance of the word creation is, is loaded with the full freight of Christian theology, not every use of the word evolution is loaded with this naturalistic uh, assumption uh, that the universe is driven by kind of unpredictable natural processes. Um, and one of the things you would notice is that modern definitions of, of evolution often use the word natural multiple times as if to reinforce when we're talking about big E evolution, we are not considering the possibility of supernatural causes being involved in the origins of the universe, earth, life. We'll talk more about that today. So just a little refresher, and now what we're going to do is have a commercial break while Estella comes up and gets ready uh, to walk us through uh, some... some uh, amazing ideas, David Fisk is going to give us a commercial. So, yeah, talking about wondering um, and, you know, whenever Holly uh, would ask us scientists, you know, what do you wonder about? And, and, you know, you have two minutes to talk about it. I'm like, I can't do that. So can I, you know, use pictures? Um, So they let me have this slot with the slides. Um, And the thing that I've been wondering about for a long time um, is this John 1, 1 through 4? Um, because it has Jesus as the Word and then also Jesus as co-creator. So as a biologist, I was just like, you know, why is Jesus called the co-creator? You know, why couldn't it just be God the Father who created the world? Um, and what does the Word have to do with the beginning of the world? Um, so I'll just read through it. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So yeah, verse 3, through him, through the Word, Jesus, all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. So I'm just like, why... Why was Jesus the word needed to create the world in the beginning through the Genesis account? Um, and so I don't know if this is theologically correct, but I've just, you know, I also teach bioethics and talked a lot with my students about how, you know, humans are very, obviously very different from other living things. We have language, um, and that gives us what I call long hindsight. You know, we have history, um, and long foresight, you know, we can, we can ponder things in all fields, philosophy, theology, law, science, and so that allows us to think ahead, too. Um, all right, so then there's the word, we have language, um, and then Jesus is the word, so I keep asking Jimmy, we know, is there a relationship? Um, so, anyway, so I'll go with the question. What did God actually say when he spoke the world into existence? No? All right, I'll try this arrow. Okay. Um, so I thought maybe he said something that, like this. Uh, so my dad was a physicist at Emory, and I grew up going to his office. I would raid his food drawer. Um, but his chalkboard in his office always looked like this, just full of equations, and they were the same equations, like they'd probably been up there for years. 
um, and I would want to draw on it, you know, I just, you know, <laughs> and so he would, he would, he's like, no, 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 that's my research. Um, so he would, he would erase a tiny corner, like it was literally like about five inches in a line. He's like, you can draw here. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, and again, so it would take, you know, a scientist like 40, 50 years to come up with understanding stuff. But, you know, God and Jesus, they just spoke it in a few minutes or I don't know how long, who knows how long it took. But, you know, they just bring, you know, and there's the world. Um, but then the scientists, you know, it takes us decades and talking with each other, publication, peer review process, blah, 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 to understand this stuff. Um, and so, you know, that's just true of all the sciences. And so here's the language of chemistry. Um, I was kind of torn between, you know, the figure on the left, which to me looks sort of more typical chemistry, and, you know, people, y'all would recognize it. But I also like the one on the right. Um, gonna use, all right, well, anyway, just the, you see the red arrows. So if any of you have studied organic chemistry, you remember, like, looking at these formulas and then the arrows. The arrows show what the molecules will do, just, and they each behave according to what element they are, what atom they are. And um, I'm not a chemist, but I always wondered at that. Like, they just sort of move on their own. Um, and so, you know, that's God. You know, when he's speaking the laws or fundamental laws of matter into existence, you know, he's making them behave the way they do. And that's deeply important for biology as well. Like, how does DNA behave the way it does you know, why is the UV radiation from the sun, you know, damaging to our DNA? It's at a particular wavelength. Um, all right, and so um, I'm kind of going up in scale, right? So science is thinking a lot about scale, like from the atomic to the molecular to the cellular to the organismal and then on to, like, um, uh, habitats and ecology, and so science also realizes that we can't really understand things unless we can incorporate those scales. So now the funding agencies like uh, scientists to collaborate with one another, like collaborate between a physicist and a biologist, just so we can begin to incorporate those different scales into our understanding. Um, so now we've reached biology. And this is a book um, written by Francis Collins, uh, we have a well-read audience here. You know, I was talking to someone. She said, yes, I read that book several years ago. Um, so Francis Collins was the NIH director during the uh, Human Genome Project. Um, he's also a Christian. Uh, I think he's Presbyterian. I don't know what branch of Presbyterian. But, um, and I've, I've just started to read it. So to my shame, like I've had it for years, but I never had a chance to read it. But it's really good. And... Um, he goes through a lot of uh, mere Christianity. So mere Christianity was formative for him. Um, and I think so far what I've read, um, it seems like he takes a lot of the arguments for mere Christianity and then he puts a scientific twist on it, like so his background. Um, so already Francis Collins is calling like DNA the language of God. And so we're figuring out the human genome. Um, but now we know so much more about the human genome or beyond the human genome. So, you know, it's not enough to know just the sequences, right? We got all the sequence information, and now we're like, now what do we do with that? Um, so 
if you remember the central dogma biology goes hereditary information goes from DNA to RNA to protein. It's like in high school biology. So RNA is, um, RNA exists in transcripts. So that's why the next stage of information is called the transcriptome. So all the possible RNA transcripts that could exist in a living thing. Um, and that's just a subset of the genes. Right? So the genome represents all the genes that are in the DNA. And then the transcriptome represents all the genes that are expressed. Like, we don't want to express all the genes at the same time, because then we'd just be a ball of mush. Um, and then the proteome are the proteins. All the proteins are expressed, and they're a subset of the transcripts. Because, again, we don't want to turn all the RNA or translate all the RNA into the proteins, right? And, you know, when you are just an embryo, you, you express one set of genes. And then as you develop, you know, there are different genes turning on and off, and so that's how, again, how God is fearfully and wonderfully making us, you know, so that, again, we're not just a ball of mush or a miscarriage. Um, and then the metabolome is like all the possible metabolic reactions going on. And so all those circles and dots, you know, they're just like how the, the metabolic reactions are interacting with one another. Um, so I think of these as like the biological languages of God. Um, and then this is the, the uh, website for the National Center for Biotechnology Information. Um, and I think of this as the human attempt to catalog all the language, biological languages of God. Um, so you could enter in, you know, if you're interested in a gene, you can enter in the gene. And then when you click on it, it pops up everything that we know about that gene. Um, so all the publications, uh, all the different tissues that gene is expressed in or what developmental stage, um, all the clinical findings. And so, again, this is like a collaboration, like, you know, the doctors discover the clinical findings, the lab scientists discover the sequence part, a different lab scientists discover the protein part. Um, and then also um, all the, the homologs of that gene that would exist in other species. So um, it's a big website. I mean, it's a database of databases. It's overwhelming. It's like taking a sip of water at a fire hose. That's what they say at MIT. Um, but, you know, so as overwhelming as this database can be, um, you know, God spoke all of these connections into creation. Um, and... It also reminded me of, you know, that part in Genesis where God um, brings to the animals to Adam and he gives Adam the chance to name all the animals. So th that down there is not, it's just my memory of like what that verse said, so it's not the real verse. But, um, but we're still doing it, right? So from Linnaeus, who was the first guy who came up with a phylogenetic system, you know, we're still naming all the living things and trying to understand them. Um, all right, and so uh, I've kind of talked about how I see the basic sciences, or we call that discovery science. Um, we're just discovering God's truths um, in his creation. And I think, I think that's also true of the applied sciences. So for engineering or medicine or even, you know, more, more human-centered like bioethics. So I've never formally studied bioethics, but the more I teach it, 
the more I feel like I'm discovering things about God's creation. Um, so, so that's why I feel like, you know, if you pursue truth in any field, you're going to bump into God. Um, and, you know, I can't understand everything about evolution or Genesis. Um, but, you know, if there's a miss, you know, if there's not a place where they reconcile, I'm okay with that. Because one thing I do know is that I don't understand everything about those two fields. Um, I also know that uh, biotechnology and medical technology give us the illusion of control. Um, so this is like one of our first pictures of Peter. You know, I told him there were a couple of pictures of him in the slides. He's like, Ooh, I don't. but you don't recognize yourself. Um, so, you know, we had to use like a, a fertility clinic to conceive Peter. Um, and again, the, you know, the clinic kind of gives this illusion that, you know, you can control everything. And it took several tries. Um, and, you know, lots of female friends, they said, oh, Estella, you're, you're just being so strong. Um, but it didn't feel like it took a lot of strength to me because I've tried to grow living things in an incubator. I mean, they were just like fruit flies and soil nematodes and things like that. But, but I know how easily they die. You know, you're trying to culture them in a, in a serum of, of your own creation, a synthetic thing. And is the oxygen level right? Is the whatever, or the temperature? And, you know, so they just die very easily. Um, so to, to me, the real miracle was that you could take an egg inject it with this nasty looking metal or no glass needle stick a sperm into it and then culture it in a foreign formula and in an incubator and then getting living get a living child out of it um that to me was always the miracle so so i always knew that you know we need god every step of the way whether you're doing it the natural way and the natural way is far better um or using technology you know, and anybody who's been trying to fight cancer and been in the hospital for a long time, you know, you know that we always need God every step of the way. Um, I also think of us uh, as sub-creators and stewards. Um, and so it's not just the scientists who are sub-creators, right? That's just kind of who humans are. Um, you know, so we have language, and it's our language that enables us to to have that long hindsight and that long foresight. Um, and so this makes us completely different from other species, right? We're, you know, we all know this. We're just so different. So I think of that as kind of like the holy spark. Um, you know, that's who God made us to be. Um, and so, you know, because we have that long hindsight and that long foresight that we can know what actions from us are harmful and what actions from us are, are good. And so we, that's where we formulate our laws and try to prevent harm um, or get along with one another. Uh, and then you know, the funding agencies also differentiate the sciences between discovery science, um, the just basic sciences, uh, and that's where evolution, they put evolutionary studies in there. So you can only get funded for evolutionary studies by the NSF because it only funds discovery science. And then the, the applied sciences are more for solving a real problem in humankind. And so that's where the NIH comes in. Um, and it will fund research that will solve human disease. Um, and I should have put uh, some you know, some, some actual, like, medical things, like, you know, good patient care, 
um, or engineering principles in the applied sciences. My examples here are actually more sort of science ethics, you know, just new construction must ensure no sedimentation run off into nearby streams and lakes and gene editing, blah, blah, blah. But uh, anyway, so I think of the discovery sciences as us discovering God's natural law um, and then the applied sciences as us discovering God's mediated law. Um, I only saw that, like, what mediated law is, is just like God's law mediated through man. You know, checking with the theologians. So anyway, that's what I think of um, our role in the sciences. Um, okay. So I got a, a chance to, well, I could have talked about my favorite genes, but I don't want to take everything. <laughs> these are actually slides from my my lecture. Uh, but I will say, just knowing about these genes, then that gives you things to ponder about, like what God did in evolution. Um, so I won't go through all the slides. Just I'll just explain. You know, I know about one gene. Um, it's called ultrabithorax, and it made. You see how the normal fly on top just has two wings, and then this mutant fly has four wings. So there's a gene change that caused that, and it wasn't just um, the wings itself. Like the whole body segment is swollen like, the, like in the normal one. So that's a big change. Um, and, you know, we discovered how that works. Uh, so knowing the gene responsible for that, then, you know, then you look at the dragonfly who has four wings and also the butterfly. And so, like, is this what God did? during evolution, like just change the gene expression. Um, and so, you know, we, there's a whole family of these genes and they are expressed in the same way in whatever organism you, you look at from the worm to the fruit fly to the mouse. Um, and we've looked at them in the, in other organisms too, like the chicken or the goose. And so then, um, in the snake too, so, so this slide is just about like the, it's not the same gene as I was just talking about, but a different gene where it's just in the snake at the bottom, you can see he just expresses all of Hox6, whereas the other ones, the other animals that have, you know, neck vertebra versus thoracic vertebra, um, you know, the neck vertebra express one gene and then the thoracic vertebra express a different gene. And so that's what defines where you get legs and thoracic vertebra. So anyway, so when I see that about the snake, you're like, well, maybe that's what God did when the snake could no longer have legs. Who knows? But um, All right, so just a few more things. So Jesus likes to hear about molecules. Um, I know. It sounds, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. So, you know, we're used to studying things that nobody else wants to hear about. Um, so we just keep it mom. And so again, yeah, she asked you, what do you wonder about? I'm like, do you really want to hear about that? Um, but, you know, they told us that at a graduate Christian conference. And, you know, I was glad to hear it. Um, when I first heard it, I just, I, I believed it. But I just figured it was just Jesus wanting to hear about it for my sake. Because he, um, he loved me. But after trying to figure out his creation for many years and wondering about molecules and, you know, is that what you did when you made the dragonfly? Um, now I know that he's like the supreme author, right? He, you know, when you read a publication and you want to talk to the author, you know, then of course the author's glad that you're, you read their stuff and that you want to talk about it to them. 
So, so God is like, he's the supreme author, and I think he's happy to hear about my questions about evolution. Um, and then, yeah, this far side cartoon, it says, yes, that's right. The answer is Wisconsin. Another 50 points for God. And uh-oh, it looks like Norman, our current champion, hasn't even scored yet. So, <laughs> so that's how I think of the scientists and God, too. Just he knows everything, and, you know, we're just like, I don't know. Um, all right, so I also think that God enjoys our discovery and looks forward to us discovering things with him. Um, so I just have this picture of, of Peter and uh, a table. It's a little Ikea table. Um, when we got the table, he was only about two, and he'd never seen anything being put together before. So I remember, you know, we're pulling things out of the box, and he's slowly watching us put the table together. And it's finally a table and chair of his size. So when it was all together, he's has this great big grin on his face, and he sits down. He's like, Mama, seat. And, you know, he pats the seat and invites me to sit next to him. And so as so I think of that, when a scientist is discovering something, you're, you're just delighting in it. You're just like, oh, wow, this is so cool. And so I think, you know, when God is enjoying our discoveries with us, it's kind of that same, that same joy. Uh, and then I have a picture of Marshall up there. He's, he's working hard to build a platform or the foundation for a fort. Um, and so in, in another one of my devotionals, it said how, um, you know, there's a divine romance at the center of the universe, and we are included in that. And so how Jesus as co-creator loved us long before we were created. And at first that sounded weird to me, like how could somebody love you before you're created? But, you know, staring at the sonogram of Peter, you know, yeah, of course. I mean, parents just, we look forward, or we already love our children, and we look forward to doing things with them. And so, you know, that's Marshall, you know, looking forward to when he can build things with his son. Um, and I also think that, that God is like that. You know, as we create good things, then I think God is enjoying it with us. A few minutes to unpack some of what we just experienced and witnessed in kind of incarnate form. We're going to do a little bit of what Estella would do as a scientist, which is to describe what she's observing happening in the world. So we just observed something happening. We're going to take a few minutes to describe it. And as we do that, we'll talk a bit about how do we think about the relationship, uh, uh, some of the major claims of evolutionary theory and teaching. We'll unpack that a bit. Um, <clears throat> however, one thing you'll notice is a, a humility um, uh, about um, not only Estella personally, that she didn't come up here and try to wow us with all of her qualifications as a scientist. She didn't have to. Right, I mean, you, you know she knows her stuff, right? Um, but there's a humility and a wonder, and, and even that last cartoon of, like, um, the doofus champion who has zero points, she says that that's, she, that's the scientist, represents the scientist, right? <laughs> like, we can know a lot compared to the author of the story. All of our knowledge together is, is still that childlike sense of, He's looking at us saying, you're starting to get it. You're starting to get it. So back to where we began this morning with Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That sense of wonder and delight, re-enchanting the world, majesty. 
It goes on to say, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? I see how glorious and powerful you are. I not only have wonder at your majesty, I marvel at the fact that, that you could think highly of a creature like me, that you could love uh, so, anyway, that, that's getting us back to a theme we'll talk more about as we uh, walk forward. Now, Estella has humility uh, and doesn't need to present you with her credentials. I'm not like that. Um, I reached that age in life where every time I go home, I'm handed a box of stuff from the attic. And uh, we were going through one of those the other day, and Trisha said, oh, you ought to bring that and show it to people. And, and here I am. I can talk about sciencey things because when I was 13... I won this. And it says zoology. Junior zoology. Therefore, listen. <clears throat> the other reason I'm qualified to talk about sciencey stuff, uh, three possible approaches to how we think about creation and evolution, is I love trains. Um, three possible approaches to creation and evolution, big picture. One is contradiction. We see them as on a collision course, and creation and evolution are mutually exclusive. Only one of them can run on the track, and they're going to have a crash, and one is going to win, and one is going to lose, and I'm going to accept one and ignore the other one. That's one possible way we could think about creation and evolution. We could think in terms of contradiction, right? Or we could say they run on separate tracks and they will never touch each other. That's not contradiction, it's compartmentalization. Uh, creation is part of my spiritual life, evolution is part of my intellectual life, and they will never touch each other because remember, this kind of post-enlightenment view of the universe we've been sold, the two-story universe. Um, faith and facts will never touch each other. Belief lives up in the attic where sentimental things of no real value are stored, and real life happens down here. Facts. Faith is up there. Science is down here. Creation is up there. Evolution is down here. And I live this compartmentalized, bifurcated life. Um, and I kind of, uh, that, that, that means I don't have to answer some hard questions. So it's comfortable. I don't have to answer the question of what use really is great grandma's crocheted uh, handbag. You know, I, I don't have to answer that question. Right? Um, so I could take that compartmentalized approach and say, hey, creation is on one track, evolution is on another, and you're never going to touch each other. And so I don't have to ask some of the kinds of questions that, that Estella was raising and wrestling with for us. Right? Because you'll, So one of the things we were witnessing as Estella talked, were you seeing this? Is that what you were hearing? No? Right. Is this a person who believes God created everything that exists? Yeah. Is this a person who thinks it's worthwhile to study the world? Think deeply about science? Wings on mutant flies? Um, yeah, there's not a contradiction here. But also, is this what we were hearing? Let's be good scientists. What did we observe? 
that we observe this kind of parallel tracks. I'm going to talk a few minutes about what I believe and then a few minutes about what I do as a scientist. No, what we were hearing and seeing is, is, is not that. It's this sense of God wants to use us to break down this kind of bifurcated, compartmentalized view of the universe and of the human soul and of life so that we can re-enchant the world, right? And say, it, 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 it all is one coherent story and there is wonder everywhere. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in some parts of the earth where faith matters. No, <laughs> in all the earth. Um, so, if I follow this track, I will get to one coherent truth. If I follow this track, this is a different approach. It's not contradiction. It's not compartmentalization. It's complementarity. Creation and evolution somehow fit together. They provide different perspectives on a single coherent reality. How can that be the case? Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, <clears throat> here's a quotation from a, a Christian leader, uh, Archibald Alexander Hodge was his name. He went by A.A. Hodge as uh, Clarence DeWitt, who goes by Jimmy. I can get it. Um, He was a professor at Princeton Seminary in the 1800s. And he said this, the book of Revelation, he's talking about the Bible, and the book of nature, he's talking about science, are both from God. And they will be found when both are adequately interpreted to coincide perfectly. Right? Right? Are his trains headed toward each other on collision course? Contradiction. No. Is he compartmentalizing the world? Is he saying Christians should only worry about the book of Revelation and leave the book of nature to atheists? No. Right? He's taking this approach of complementarity. I think that when we get... When we get our reading of what the Bible says about the world we live in and when we get our reading of the world we live in right then we're going to find harmony. Now, he goes on to say later in this quote that, hey, we're still learning a lot. We, the, data's, the data sets are incomplete. Uh, he's, living at, he's talking especially about geology here. Um, so Christians ought to celebrate the reading of both books, um, not because we think they come from separate stories in this divided, two-story, bifurcated universe, but because we believe both are describing one reality, one world. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, coming back to our distinction between big E evolution and little e evolution and reminding you. <laughs> I got this in my pocket. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about some perspectives that are uh, held by people who embrace Biggie evolution, a naturalistic, materialistic view of evolutionary theory and uh, perspective. But also people who would say, I don't think the universe is materialistic, anti-supernatural. I do think God created everything and I do think evolution is one of the mechanisms that God has used. Um, so here are three perspectives that where I believe that Christians could wholeheartedly agree with someone who uh, champions evolution, whether little e evolution or even big e evolution. In other words, if I'm sitting down to have a conversation with somebody who's an atheistic, naturalistic, I think the, the whole universe is just matter plus chance 
and nothing supernatural exists. I can still agree wholeheartedly with that person about many things. I don't have to come into that conversation on, in the attack mode. Let's emphasize contradiction. Let's talk about what we share in common. There is a staggering diversity of life in our world. Can we start in this place of wonder instead of this place of attack? There is a staggering diversity of life in our world. Understanding how that came to be is a worthwhile endeavor. Now, if you think that came to be through randomness and chance and there, there is nothing supernatural and, and I think it came to be involving something supernatural, then, yeah, at, at that point, we're on contradictory paths. But back here, we're still at complementarity. We, every Christian can affirm this, right? It is worthwhile to know something about the world we live in. And it can even be full of wonder. Right? So, complementarity. Evolutionary perspective. Anybody who believes in evolution could affirm that, whether they believe in the big E kind or the little E kind. There's nothing contradictory to a Christian understanding of creation in that. Fundamental agreement, complementary. Second, natural world operates according to a whole lot of consistent processes, principles, and patterns. Stella described those as languages, right? Laws. Um, every scientist believes this or they wouldn't do science, right? There's no way into science if you don't start at this place because what's the point in doing a, an experiment if it's, I don't know, if I do the same thing tomorrow, is something different going to happen, right? I found this law. It's only going to be good for 12 more minutes, <laughs> you know? Um, no. Any, if you know someone who hates the idea that God created the world, chances are they believe this is true. And if you love the idea that God created the world, you believe this is true. Right? God believes this is true. And so, uh, we agree on this. There, there, we don't have to come into this conversation afraid that we're already on the everything is headed for a collision contradiction. Right? There's some complementary things here. Yeah, great. Uh, here's a third. Microevolution is an observable feature of the natural world. I, I believe that there's no intrinsic conflict with Christian understanding of big C creation and that claim. Now, how are we going to define microevolution? I'm going to quote somebody who has more than this in their pocket. Um, <clears throat> a woman named Estella Quinn who says, uh, I, I think this is a good, <laughs> right? Adaptations resulting in changes in the frequency of gene versions in a population. That's what microevolution is. Right? Um, and uh, so we might have to go back to science class for a minute. What's an allele? Um, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, and I'm saying gene versions and allele are two ways of saying the same thing. So a lot of times when you read um, uh, biological material talking about evolution, it's going to use the word allele. 
And, and what it's saying is there are different versions of different gene sequences on chromosomes, and uh, each version, uh, the, the, if, if there are different versions of that same gene sequence, we call this one an allele and that one an allele, and that's all I know, and my little thing is... Um, <coughs> See, I can find stuff on the internet, and I had a blue ribbon in my pocket. Um, Do we see adaptation happening in the world around us in creatures? Yes, yes we do. Right? Um, is that adaptation the result of purely naturalistic, materialistic causes? There's no God in the universe. That's not what this says. Right? <clears throat> Sometimes we can get uptight and feel like that's implied in a claim like this. There's no need, right? So, um, now, one thing I think we do... All right, here's a, a more technical... What is evolution? It's, it's this change in the frequency of alleles in a population. Um, as some um, organisms have better reproductive success than others. Um, and uh, observing that, paying attention to it, trying to understand it. That's a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, if you read contemporary teaching about um, evolution, little e or big E, it will say that here are the four forces that drive adaptation. Uh, one thing I would want to say is if you're my age or older, you're probably accustomed, you probably want to recognize the first and the last of those four forces. When evolution was taught to you and to me back in the day, we would have heard a lot about mutation and natural selection. We've missed out on 40-plus years' worth of genetics and the field of genetics being brought back in to inform the way evolution is understood. And so conversations about evolution now often focus more on the micro scale than the macro. And um, you'll notice that there's these two new factors in here that you probably don't remember from junior high school if you're 50 or older, right? And so um, the synthesis of, of, what, of, of genetics with uh, the understanding of, of evolution is called neo-Darwinism sometimes. And so I would just say if you're going to have a conversation with someone significantly younger than you about creation and evolution you probably need to read some new material about evolution, or you need to be very curious about learning from them first. Because they may be talking about very different things than you and I might assume, right? Because my little ribbon says 1983. <laughs> and um, so in 1983... When I wasn't a Christian, I'm learning about evolution. We were talking about um, everything came from chance and it's random. And now in a conversation about evolution, maybe a junior high student is talking about why did this fly have four wings and that one had only two? And we might be having different kinds of conversations because one is focused more on genetic level adaptations that we, microevolution I'm thinking up here on the scale of, you know, is, is there even a God in the universe? Um, 
Okay, so that was three, three attempts to look at claims where, hey, we, we don't have to think in terms of loggerheads and automatic contradiction. Diversity in the world is worth understanding. Principles, consistency, laws. Uh, we can observe the world and learn about it. Um, adaptations that result from these genetic changes and genetic variations. Um, that's worth, it's worth recognizing how that fits into our understanding of the world. Now let me talk about the two trains headed for a collision. Biggie evolution is in fundamental opposition to Christian perspectives on creation. Because the way we're defining Big E evolution during our four weeks is this naturalistic, materialistic understanding that starts here. The universe is just matter in nature. There is nothing besides matter. There is nothing besides the natural world. There is no supernatural. Therefore, whatever you think is non-material, soul, spirit, mind, truth, reason it's just our way of describing material things that if we were honest about it we would say the universe is just filled with matter there is nothing supernatural and that leads to a lot of consequences about how we think about the world now clearly that's all i mean genesis 1 1 how does it start in the beginning God. Boom. The crash just happened, right? Unless we go, that's a nice little story we can keep stored up in the attic, but we know it's not a real description of the true universe because the true universe is down here where only matter exists and where we can tell ourselves nice stories that might keep the kids obedient or it might give us uh, something to think about while we're dying that comforts us. But it's a cold comfort because when I'm dying, do I feel like going up to the attic? Um, nothing exists besides matter in nature. Here's a definition of evolution. Uh, picking it from materials available through um, UC Berkeley. Notice how many times the word, nat word natural will appear in this. There's nothing in this definition that says we are against the existence of supernatural things. But when you say the word natural this prominently this many times in one paragraph, you're trying to drive home a point. And the point either is we don't think the supernatural exists or we think the supernatural is a totally different realm of, of study and, and it has nothing to do with understanding biology and cosmology and the, the, the origins of the universe. So we're, we're either going to bracket it and keep it in the attic or we think the attic doesn't even exist, right? Five times within like one paragraph. Natural world, natural processes, evidence from the natural world. Natural processes, evidence from the natural world, right? Uh, here's another um, assertion of Big E evolution, the primary force shaping our universe and life itself is chance. Remember last week we decide, we defined little c chance and big c chance. Um, 
Randomness without purpose or design, there is no knowable first cause. If you get into a cause-effect chain and you start trying to trace it back, you will never find the uncaused cause. You will never find the unmoved mover. You will never find the self-existent force or being. Right? Everything had to have a cause. There's no first cause. That first cause language comes from Aristotle and, um, and has a, a, a place in Christian history. Uh, here's our denomination's Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and it says in its chapter about providence that God is the first cause, but that he has structured nature so that it would unfold according to second causes. So he, for example, God isn't created. He's the first cause. He directly creates the first human beings, Adam and Eve, according to Genesis 1 and 2. But then he doesn't directly create every other human being, does he? The second cause he uses to get the next generation of human beings into uh, this world is procreation, reproduction, right? He doesn't say, y'all sit back, do nothing, I'll take care of the rest. He establishes the... Big C creation has space in it for, for you knowing that God uses second causes. Where Christians disagree most, I've come to see, about creation and evolution, where Christians disagree, is on what is the extent to which microevolution is one of the second cause mechanisms that God has used to bring about the diversity of life and or the origin of life. And um, so, so that's where there, we have this kind of internal debate in the Christian community. Right? We don't have a debate about whether the fundamental force shaping the universe is randomness and chance. Christians don't debate that. Right? That's, a, that's a big e-evolutionary claim. And, and so when, when someone like Estella or any other Christian who has studied evolution and walks away saying, I am convinced that, that this kind of change, which we today describe as evolution, is one of the mechanisms that our Creator has used and, and, and is using. She's not saying the whole universe is random. Right? That's a very different claim and, and um, so uh, there's some claims about evolution where we go there's complementarity uh, you know uh, and then there are some claims about evolution where we say no this is contradiction there's no contradiction in saying that God the first cause uses second causes and therefore let's study them let's study the mechanisms the laws the principles that he's using uh, now is he free to work Without those second causes, is he free to perform miracles? Is he free to bring about a human baby through some other means than natural procreation? Maybe say virgin conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary because we need a second Adam to reboot the whole human race? Yeah, he's free to do that. Now, a big evolution is not going to have space for that kind of miracle because a miracle takes something that is outside of nature acting within nature. 
And Big E Evolution said there is nothing outside of nature. Now, question. If you're going to say with certainty that nothing exists outside of nature, would you need to get outside of nature to be able to say that with certainty? I think you would. You can't say that with certainty. From inside the room, you can't say with certainty whether there's anything outside the room. You could say, I have not yet seen evidence that convinces me there's something outside the room. Right? One of the problems is that um, we oftentimes uh, don't do our thinking with appropriate humility. All right. We don't have time to go into all of this. I want to land here. Um, Man... I was hoping we'd have time for some Q&A today. Um, Let's do this and then take maybe one or two questions. I've asked Jonathan Yoder to uh, be my ally in responding to questions this morning because, um, you know, my little blue ribbon is very old and very small. Um, This is an Australian pastor, Mark Sayers, in a book called Disappearing Church. He's not trying to say... Like, like if we talk to a, a biggie evolutionist, somebody who's, who's convinced there is nothing supernatural in the whole universe, and evolution is the explanation for how everything came to exist and how all of life and all its staggering diversity arose, would they say it more in a more nuanced or humble fashion than this? Maybe so. Does every biologist in the world consciously have this in their mind every time they fill a test tube no that's not what Sayers is saying what Sayers is saying is that the popular application of the intellectual framework of evolutionary teaching in our culture leads most people to this place for over centuries we've been told that we are just cosmic accidents that we are on the edge of an empty universe that our motivations, interests, and desires are programmed into us as biological instincts. That's biggie evolution. And that's where it often leaves us. So it either leaves us thinking that's where life happens and there is no attic, or I believe in a God who lives in the attic. I believe in a Jesus who's helpful up in the attic. But man, right here, right now, when I'm trying to decide whether pornography rules my life, the attic ain't helping me because I am controlled by my biological impulses. And they say, look until your heart is satisfied. And what can I do? Right, so that that, that place of... of of um, defeatedness and helplessness um, and and emptiness is why I keep coming back to this. If we're going to have a conversation in our world about creation and evolution, the first thing people need to see and taste in that conversation isn't, I want to fight you because I'm a Christian and I'm right and you're wrong. The first thing they need to feel, hear, see, and taste is wonder. We love to learn. 
We love to see what's good in our world. And we think you can do that without winding up in this place of helplessness and defeat and hopelessness. Right? Not that every slide about flies and wings leaves you feeling empty. Estella modeled that so well for us today, right? And, and, but, but oftentimes that's how it's going to be perceived is that, well, you, my options are to be fought by a Christian who thinks I'm wrong while clearly they're crazy, or I live in this very empty universe. All right. Man. Okay. Steve's preaching this morning. I want to honor him by letting you get down to worship on time so that you're not, you know, still thinking about how poorly I answered your technical question about alleles. Um, so we'll start off next week with some Q&A. Can we do that? Can I pray for us? Lord, we're going to worship and... Um, who knows how we're going there, where our hearts are. Um, some of us are in that place where everything does feel empty and we do feel defeated. And we're having a hard time seeing your purpose in our world. Um, some of us are still feeling like life is bifurcated between the sentimental attic where you live and the real world where you're absent. We know that's not true and yet we still feel it. And some of us are just in this place of excitement and wonder and awe at your majesty. And some of us are bouncing from one place to the other every moment. Go with us. Show us your son. Show us the word, the co-creator who brought all things into existence. Show us Jesus who entered the womb of Mary through a first cause act where you use second causes the womb of a real human mother to bring him into our world not into the attic but down on the ground floor to show us your love and reclaim us to be your own show us that Jesus and send us into the world to re-enchant it with the story of how beautiful and good he is we pray in his name Amen.